Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Michael Knowles. He's the host of The Michael Knowles Show on The Daily Wire. Uh, he does PragerU's The Book Club. He's the author of Reasons to Vote for Democrats, A Comprehensive Guide. His, his new book is Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Our topic today, welcome Mr. Knowles. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be with you. Well, you say right off that political correctness has, quote, inverted our culture, and that it par this has happened partly through, quote, the incompetence of the right. You want to give us a good example to begin of, of uh, conservative incompetence? Yes. I, I, I mean, we could be here all day if we were to just chronicle conservative incompetence. I guess... One way to highlight how the left manipulates language for their own purposes of inverting the society is to go back not that far, maybe six, seven years, to the debate over same-sex marriage, which is interesting because, if you recall, there never was any debate. No. No. <laughs> the, the debate over same-sex marriage would have, if it were to have existed, uh, would have centered around the question, what is marriage? For all of human history everywhere on Earth, uh, people believed that sexual difference had something to do with marriage. And then about five minutes ago, some radicals said, no, it doesn't. And so, okay, fair enough. What's the argument? They never had to present an argument as to what marriage would be if it didn't have something to do with sexual difference because the politically correct wordsmiths begged the question. They, they just uh, assumed their own conclusions, and they said, look, we already know that sexual difference has nothing to do with marriage. So now we're debating who has the right to get married. And at that point, they had won the debate because nobody wants to deny anyone a right to anything. But it was very dishonest. And it was very subtle. And it, it, I think, typifies this strategy that has led conservatives into a trap for decades now. In Speechless, I trace the history of political correctness back not just 30 years, but about 100 years. And for about 30 years, we've been aware of it. That's that's the time that it has really been on the public stage. Yeah. And during that time, we have lost without interruption every single major cultural battle we appear to have lost. Why is that? It's not just because the left is so clever, but it's because the right has fallen for this trap. And, and I think the key is this. Political correctness seeks to undermine the traditional standards of society. And either of the two major ways that conservatives react end up advancing political correctness. So on the one hand, you have people who just go along with the new standards. Obviously, that is going to advance PC. But then on the other side, you have the more stalwart conservatives who say, I'm not going to go along with the new politically correct standard. But they ground their arguments 
on giving up standards entirely. You, you might call them the free speech absolutists. Yeah. They're the ones who say you should be able to say anything, do anything, whatever you want to do at any given time. Uh, that's how we're going to fight PC. And the, the problem is that either strategy you use is going to give the left what it wants, namely the abandonment of traditional standards. And because nature abhors a vacuum, the new woke standard is going to come in and take its place. And, and we, we haven't managed to, to find any way. The farther... The harder, rather, that we fight against this thing, the more ground we seem to lose. You know, one of your main points at the beginning is that this form of acquiescence uh, is often first carried out at the level of words. What what you were saying a minute ago meant uh, reminded me of the conversion into of the debate, the non-debate over marriage. It suddenly becomes an, an issue of marriage equality. Uh, and you're, you're right, because the issue of marriage was, wasn't, wasn't brought up. Uh, so then it all becomes about equality. But you, you, what makes differences over words? And your example is illegal alien versus undocumented worker. What makes that difference more than just a matter of semantics? Well, I, I was an undocumented worker when I was 14 years old. <laughs> but that's not the issue we're talking about. We're talking about foreign nationals flooding over into this country. Uh, but an undocumented uh, worker, some, sometimes they're even called future Americans, for instance, mm -hmm. undocumented American, that implies that this foreign national is an American. But that is precisely what is at debate. Do we, do we want to permit these millions and millions of foreign nationals to violate our laws and become Americans or not? And so the left begs the question here. And, and a lot of the time you will hear, not just the left, but, but even parts of the squishy right say, oh, come on, who cares about these words? It's just semantics. Yeah. Well, uh, we should perhaps remind them, semantics means meaning itself. <laughs> right? It means the meaning of words. And so obviously that's going to be very important to our self-government. You know, when, when the right says, for instance, on the, the pronoun battles that we're facing, oh, who cares whether or not we call Bruce Jenner he or she? My, my answer is the left cares. Yeah. The left certainly cares because, because it has been spending a lot of time and energy and effort trying to get us all to deny what we see with our very own eyes and to invert reality. Why? Because I think they know that words smuggle in whole premises. If the question is, should a man in a dress be permitted to go into a local spa and expose himself to a bunch of women in the changing room, I think virtually everyone but the most hardened radicals in the country would say, of course he should not be allowed to do that. But if the question is, should a trans woman, or increasingly you'll just hear these men referred to as, as women, should a woman or a trans woman be permitted to go change in the women's room? Well, of course, the answer would be yes. The women's room is for women, for all women, including even trans women, which you and I know means not women. It, it colors how we view the world. It, it, it exerts not just the overt censorship that we've been talking about a lot with cancel culture or wokeness, you know, the, the Silicon Valley oligarchs who deplatform the sitting president of the United States, but it exerts an even more insidious sort of pre-censorship that the, before we can even engage in a debate, the, the left, by redefining all of the terms in an attempt to redefine reality, has, has already positioned itself as the victor. And then we're just quibbling over, over the details. And I think the left, left has done this successfully for decades and decades. And unless we change course, I think the culture is basically lost. It's infuriating. Why does the right 
not understand this? The power of well, words, I, I mean. I, I wish it were so simple as to say, go buy my book and read it, and <laughs> then we'll figure it all out. You know, I, I hope that is part of it. I encourage, I encourage people to, to buy the book to see the problem. But, but it's, it's not so simple as that, to solve the problem. I think the, the reason that the right has been so ineffective is because it has very little to say. <laughs> you know, debates over free speech in the abstract are well and good, but they don't mean anything for people who don't have anything to say. And, and the left is willing to articulate a substantive vision of politics. It seems almost entirely destructive. It involves tearing down statues, and tearing and burning flags, and things like that. But at least they're saying this is our vision of what is good and true and beautiful, and it might be quite the opposite of, what, of that reality, but at least they're saying it. For the right, what are we willing to say? I mean, at this point, you know, some people who are styling themselves conservatives, I don't think they really are anymore, who are defending critical race theory in schools, who are defending transgenderism in schools, who are defending drag queen story hour, for goodness sakes. And what they're saying, and actually on the pages of First Things, is uh, where, where much of this debate took place yeah. with, with regard to drag queen story hour. Because it, I think it threw the issue into stark relief. The argument, and I want to be charitable to the what you might call the free speech absolutist, is what they are saying is that if if we prevent perverts from twerking for toddlers at the public library, why then the left might turn around and prevent us from going to mass on Sunday? And I think first of all, the left is already doing that. <laughs> <laughs> we we lost yeah, that one. We lost that one in many parts of this country for a long time. Uh, but furthermore, if you really believe that we no longer possess the faculties of reason and the moral conscience to discern between a pervert jiggling for a two-year-old and a, a pastor reciting a homily and, and liturgy, then we have lost our capacity for self-government, which relies on our capacity to discern between these sorts of things. You know, uh, I, I think we've descended into the big Lebowski-style politics on the right, where you say, okay, here's, uh, you know, I think it's bad that, that transvestites are jiggling for children in the library. And you'll even hear people on the, the putative right say, well, that's just like your opinion, man. But, well, perhaps it is, but my opinion is informed by reality and my faculties of reason. And, and it, so when, when John Adams, for instance, says the Constitution is built for a moral and religious people, that's not just soft soap and superstition. He's making a, a clear and, I think, incontrovertible observation about politics. If, if you do not have those faculties, you do not have self-government, and someone else is, is going to rule you. Is George Orwell or Aldous Huxley a better guide for the workings of today's political correctness? The short answer is Huxley. Now, I know that conservatives always invoke Orwell. I speak about Orwell at length and speechless, yeah. and I think his, his writing is, is a good guide because we are now being told that 2 plus 2 has to equal 5. We are now being told to believe the party, the, the ruling liberal party, over our own lying eyes. But I think Huxley was, was a little more perceptive, and Huxley actually uh, boasted about this to his former student, George Orwell. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, that, uh, you know, Orwell, George, you're, you're seeing this very harsh sort of tyranny that, that uh, deprives people of so many pleasures. But the real tyranny that's going to come is going to be one that is entirely hedonistic. It's going to be one that, that indulges pleasure. 
It's going to be one where everyone's so hopped up on promiscuous sex and drugs that they lose the ability to to control their liberty. And, and this really gets to another one of the tricks of language, one of the redefinitions that has given the left such an advantage, which is that in the last 40 or 50 years, the left has conflated liberty and licentiousness, and whole factions of the right have gone along with it. You know, the, the modern liberal idea of liberty is that liberty is the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. The heroin addict, if he's got a couple bucks in his pocket, is the freest man in the world, right, as long as he can shoot up. Now, you and I know that's not true. Uh, we know that liberty is quite different. It's not, it's not the ability to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. It is the right to do what you ought to do, to use Lord Acton's words. It is the taming of your basest appetites and passions and the cultivation of your higher rational will. I, I know that, that this has now been, been confused, but you know, St. Paul writes about this. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. What is, he, is he just babbling incoherently? No. He's describing the difference between the lower will, also known as the appetite, and the higher will, which is the rational will. And the rational will, traditionally understood, it mediates between the, the appetite and the divine will. And this rational will is what gives us liberty. The whole purpose of liberal education is so that we can make sense of our liberty. But that, that requires limits. It requires saying that there are certain standards, and it requires that we don't give in to our base animal instincts. You know, uh, Aristotle, good old Uncle Aristotle, just defines man as the political animal uh, because he has speech. And without speech, which in a republic is politics, right, it's how we persuade one another and govern ourselves. Without that, we would be like the lower animals, and we'd be grunting and flying and clubbing each other over the head, which increasingly is what goes on on Capitol Hill. <laughs> we hope that we can, we can pull that back a little bit. Uh, if you control the speech of a body politic, you're not just controlling some aspect of the society. You're, you're really controlling the whole thing. And, and so I think we've, we've got to uh, get a hold on ourselves and, and recognize that the oppression or the, the degradation of our politics is maybe not always going to take the form that we expect. It's not always going to be the heavy fist of big brother and the tyrannical government, but it might come in the form of loosening our, our very ability to control ourselves and, and to control our language and to control our own minds. Uh, one of the words that you find is the most abused in current parlance is fascism. Uh, what, what, what do you want to give as the core definition of fascism, and how is that word distorted today? Well, speaking of George Orwell, I would dis define fascism, as Orwell does, to mean something that is not desirable. <laughs> <laughs> or Orwell wrote in uh, Politics in the English Language, a wonderful essay on, on the role of language in politics. He wrote that uh, fascism has been watered down basically to have any, any meaning beyond you know something that I don't like. And that, that's obviously how it is used today. Um, so that's very silly. Fascism has a loose definition that was laid out by Benito Mussolini and Giovanni Gentile, I believe, in 1932. Uh, but it's, it's still a little bit of a vague concept. Uh, that's, that's not my biggest issue. My, my biggest issue is that the right has gone wrong with clubbing people on the head and burning down the country uh, in recent years. You've, you've heard many conservatives point out the irony that Antifa, anti-fascists, behave like fascists in, in certain superficial ways. They exercise political violence and they wear black shirts like, like Mussolini's thugs. 
But I think that the similarities end there because the simple fact is that Antifa are not fascists. They're communists and they're anarchists. If you asked them, they would tell you that. Uh, but they're not fascists. And what what the right has done when they accept this idea that that they're they are fascist is they are accepting the the left wing premise that every evil ideology has to come from the right. You know, fascism is a complex ideology because it's so modernist, it's quite atheist. Uh, so you might say in that way it's a leftist ideology, but it's also somewhat traditionalist. It's hard to pin down. Generally, people put it on the right. But there are evil ideologies on the left as well, and this is why you, you can't wear a T-shirt on a college campus with Benito Mussolini's face on it, but you are encouraged to wear a shirt with Che Guevara's face on it, or Fidel Castro for that matter, or Chairman Mao. Uh, that, that, is, uh, that, that subtle premise that we've, we've accepted uh, that uh, I think we need to really become much more aware of. You know, there's a Marxist concept of false consciousness that the uh, second wave feminists of the 1970s uh, would, would uh, describe at their wine and cheese, and they would have sort of bourgeois housewives would show up perfectly happy and they would leave miserable because they had allegedly had their consciousness raised to be aware of their own oppression. Well, I think we need to do a little bit of raising of consciousness in the way that, that these words that we, we just use, these cliches that we use, already color our, our mind and really cloud reality. This is what Orwell says. If you don't want to think, you can just open your mind to the cliches and the cliches will fill your head and do all the thinking for you. Well, I think that's what the right has done for decades. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You talk about political correctness partly in relation to the division of public and private life, the private spheres. Are, are we, are, is privacy under threat by political correctness? Privacy is under threat, but talk about a tricky little subject. I think that conservatives are, are, are just not being subtle enough here. <laughs> they're, not, they're not recognizing the heart of the problem because really what we want is two things that seem to be in contradiction. We love having a broadly private realm that is safe from the incursions of big government and big woke corporations and big, big, big. But also we want to have a society oriented toward virtue where the standards are not, you know, burning the American flag or something like that. We want to have a, a good society. We recognize that public things are by definition political. So how do we make sense of this? You've got to understand how the, the, pub, the personal became the political, to use the, the famous phrase of the 1970s feminists. Yeah. What the, what the feminists realized, and it's laid out in a famous essay by Carol Hannish, was that the uh, politics does not just exist in the capital. It does not just exist in, in making legislation. Politics uh, has, a, has something to do with all of our public life and even our most personal life. Who does the dishes? Who, who, who cleans the clothing? 
Well, how is that political? It's political because it refers to the relationship between men and women. It refers to the basic political unit, which is the family. And the, the feminists believed that this had been too long settled and it had been oppressive toward women and not conducive to their liberation. So they were going to politicize everything. Ironically, what has happened through progressivism is that everything has become politicized from your running shoes to your chicken sandwich, except for politics, which has become depoliticized and put in the hands of experts who make uh, your decisions for you. But this, this shouldn't be totally surprising because the feminists have a point, and for, for far too long, conservatives have dismissed them. It is true that all of the settled areas of life that we once called personal and private, they do have a political dimension to them. They had just been settled, and we all basically agreed on them until the left had, had unsettled all of that, and now it's all up for debate. And so you've got You've got on the one hand the uh, more privacy-oriented conservatives, and they just they just want to go back to the way things were without the protests at the NFL and without the chicken sandwich debates and you know seems like everything's political. And then on the other hand, you've got the the more heavy-handed conservatives who say no, we really do have something to say about every aspect of people's personal lives because the truth and virtue are arrogant and some things are right and some things are wrong. But I, I think. There is a little more nuance to be had here. I do think we want to have a private realm. I do think we want to have these pol ridiculous political debates over sandwiches settling down again. But the only way that we are going to do that is by engaging in the political battle. These matters have been brought up for public scrutiny. And before they settle down again into some new standard, one side is going to win or the other. So when, when the left came in and unsettled all of this in the 1960s and 70s, they are now doing their best to settle it again. They, you know, when they came into Berkeley with the free speech movement, they were earnestly trying to uh, increase speech by knocking down the old standards. But they're only doing that instrumentally to be able to settle standards again on their own terms. So I think we need to engage in that battle. We need to win the political battle over who does the dishes and the chicken sandwiches and the speakers and the good old American flag before those things can be settled again and, and considered uh, broadly private, personal, and uh, not, not totally up for debate. Bill Buckley used the term uh, epistemological optimism, <laughs> classic Buckley kind of word. And, and he said, some things really can be settled. We really can know some things. But we are going to have to win that debate before those things can be settled again. Uh, uh, is it that conservatives won't really defend the family as a political institution? Yes, it's political, and it's a good political, the traditional family is a very good political institution because that they simply can't take the heat from the New York Times and, uh, and, and the Nation and CNN and M MSNBC. They, they, just, they just can't stand up to that. Uh, well, they certainly can't stand up to that because they don't want to be called all sorts of names, and they forget that not only is courage a virtue, but it's the prerequisite for all of the other virtues. <laughs> it's, a, it's a curious fact about the the left that they they always seem to attack the family and uh, we've talked about this on the right for many decades but why is it why does the left always try to redefine the family try to discourage the family try to discourage uh, people from getting married and from having children why why do why you know the culture of death as we call it or the cult of living as a single individual in a city somewhere working as a middle manager for the widget factory. Why, why are they so opposed to the family? Because the family is a political entity. It's the bedrock political institution. And it, it 
opposes the wildest revolutionary whims of the, the radicals. You know, the, the debate, I think, used to be framed as one between individualists and collectivists. Uh, this is another false dichotomy because the, the only the way that you get collectivism is by divvying up all of society into just a bunch of atomized individuals. So it's, it's not that they're, they're in opposition. They actually go hand in hand. Uh, and and you know over the years the the left has been pushing for individualism on the level of who you get to sleep with, and the right has been pushing for individualism on the level of how you get to keep taxes and how you conduct business. But the individualism has been increasing, and the family's fallen apart. There there is a third option, which is how about you defend the family, which is what what the left is really seeking to destroy, as that bedrock institution that just will not give in to the whims of the radicals. Uh. You have a personal episode in the book uh, that is, it's a compelling story. What happened to you at University of Missouri, Kansas City? <laughs> I said something that you're not allowed to say. I said the most controversial thing I suppose I've ever said in my whole public life. I said that men are not women. Hold, hold, Michael, was, Michael, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to cut this interview short. Now. <laughs> go, go. All, right, all right, go ahead. Bigotry. <laughs> not, not permitted here in polite society. I have been doing a tour with the Young Americas Foundation, and some topics legitimately were somewhat controversial. But men are not women. That was the one that really got me into trouble. I showed up there. I made the point that uh, human nature is such that we are body, soul, and spirit inextricably linked here on Earth. Man is not merely a material object and not merely a meat puppet and not merely a sort of Gnostic entity, you know, a metaphysical person where, uh, as the transgenderists say, our body has nothing to do with who we really are. You, you can be trapped inside of a woman's body or some, some craziness like that. So I pointed out that that's not true. Uh, there really are these categories, men and women. Men cannot become women. And women can't become men. And in the room, very few people could hear the speech because the, basically the moment I opened my mouth, a group of radicals just started screaming at the top of their lungs. And you can't really hear it on the tape, which is available on the internet because the, the microphone was feeding into the camera. So they did this for about 20 minutes. I persevered, and eventually they gave up. They'd hollered their lungs out. And one of them, however, tripped open a fire door behind my podium. And I guess this had been planned, but some masked Looney Tunes, this was before we were all masked Looney Tunes during COVID. This is just a, unusual to see a man in a, in a uh, bandana. Mm -hmm. Busts in and sprays me with some kind of bizarre substance. And uh, thankfully, a cop got him down, and they, they arrested the guy, and, and uh, he, he walked out of there. But the next day, a letter went out, an apology letter from the chancellor of the university. I was edified to see that, gratified to see that. And uh, But then I read the letter, and it was not an apology to me or to the group that had invited me, <laughs> had their event disrupted. It was an apology to the campus that I had been invited in the first place. I can only imagine what tuition-paying parents, or taxpayers for that matter, would have to say when they find out that men are not women is not a value shared by the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Uh, and uh, uh, this became a, a huge political issue. And it, it's, look, it's not just there. It's not just UMKC. This is true. If you're in a, in a corporate office and you say that men are not women, you will be written up by HR. You could lose your job for that. That could happen in a university. It could happen in the government. It could happen in the military, for goodness sakes. Uh, the reason the left, I think, is so focused on this issue is not because there are a lot of people who suffer from the psychological ailment where, where men believe that they're women or very much want to be women. There are very 
small number of people who have that problem. It's because the left knows if they can redefine not just this social aspect or this, this facet of our culture, but if they can redefine human nature itself, then there is no limit to what they can accomplish. It is a liberation, not merely from the chain of patriarchy or white supremacy or the traditional culture. It would be a liberation from nature itself. It would be, as Richard Chambers describes in Witness, the, the second oldest religion in history, the great alternative faith in mankind that began in the Garden of Eden when the serpent told Eve, ye shall be as gods. And so they do it. Now, are establishment Republicans, let's say, or are, are Republican politicians waking up to their own ineffectiveness over the decades? Or, or maybe, maybe I should put it this way. Is the populist challenge to the establishment right forcing them to acknowledge we've got to we've got to start fighting political correctness head on a absolutely it is you you can trace this in the way that the politicians are speaking because politicians speak to get themselves elected yeah. <laughs> in a very uh i hope it's not cynical i think it's a realistic take on things yeah. and so certain politicians are beginning to speak in a way that is is uh, much more open to serious ideas of virtue, truth, goodness, standards, not merely this desiccated, shallow language of free free choice, whatever whatever they mean by freedom. You see this in politicians like Marco Rubio. You see this in the candidacy of J.D. Vance, for instance, J.D. Vance in Ohio, who was very anti-Trump. He was really affiliated more with the kind of elite wing of the party. I mean, he has a very compelling personal story, but he also has had a career in finance with the Yale Law School. You know, he's, he's comfortable in those circles. But, and I, I don't, by the way, I'm not, I'm not questioning his motives. I, I think he, like a lot of us, has probably woken up to how insane that kind of politics of the, of the last 10 years has been. And he's saying, wait a second, no, some things are good, some things are true, some things are beautiful, and we're, we're going to stand up for that. This is very important. I mean, even the leading voices on this shallow proceduralism that has defined right-wing politics for, for a couple of decades now. I mean, those voices are gone. They've left the institutions largely. They've been relegated to the fringes where they belong. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased to see that, but now we've got to go a, a little bit further. It's this, this issue of courage, again, I think is very important. P people forget that uh, William F. Buckley Jr., again, when he founded the post-war conservative movement, he, he did it in a book called God and Man at Yale, subtitle, the superstitions of academic freedom. In that book, he called academic freedom a hoax. He said it was a farce that, uh, you know, Yale would never hire a neo-Nazi to teach sociology, nor should it. That that would uh, not to go along with the university's mission. And the university has to stand for truth, and what is right, and what is just, and what is good. So I think we have, I don't even want to call the the ruling establishment elites. I don't want to call them libertarian or I don't know neoconservative. Some people say I, I think that doesn't really do justice to the idea. But so many people who call themselves classical liberals or, or libertarian, uh, they seem never to have really read John Locke or any of the pieces on, on free speech. If you were defending critical race theory in schools, if you were defending 
anti-American, vicious, vile demonstrations like we saw in the past year uh, on the basis of classical liberalism. Perhaps you want to consult your John Locke again. You know, John Locke famously in the letter concerning toleration, this is the father of liberalism, says that we need to tolerate everyone except for atheists because, because atheism would undermine the very basis for free speech. John Milton in the area of Pagetica, most famous defense of free speech in the English language. He says we need free speech from everybody except for Catholics. But he was making a political point. He was making a point about the, the role of religion in, in England at the time and what that meant and the kind of civil war that it had caused and how it threatened to undermine free speech itself. So what, what both of these guys, the most, you know, most liberal guys on this topic as can be, they recognized that there are limits here. What Chesterton said, there is a thought that stops thought. And that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. And that if something is true, then its opposite is false. And it's, there's nothing closed-minded or anti-American about that. We, we can be, to use Buckley's phrase, epistemological optimists. We really can know things. And, and if we believe that we can't know things about, about the world and that we can't embrace those standards and suppress ideology and opposing standards, well, then, then we have given up our our pretense of self-government. The book is Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Michael Knowles, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure was all mine. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.